Great to see you all. It's great to see Tom getting baptized tonight. It's always exciting seeing a baptism, isn't it? You know, you, uh, and by the way, you don't congratulate Tom on getting baptized. You congratulate God on saving him. So that's what baptism is a symbol of. It's a great symbol of what God has done for us, that God has washed us clean if we trust in Christ. So praise God for seeing that tonight. Uh, but now we're going to look at God's Word and I'm going to pray for us. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight uh, we might receive your Word like those first Thessalonian Christians did, not as mere words, but instead as your Word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit might be at work in us like it was at work in them, uh, so that it might come to us in power, changing our hearts, changing our minds and shaping us to trust Christ and to live like Him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week uh, we finished the book of Judges, which we've been doing for a few months, uh, with possibly the worst story in the whole Bible. And there's some pretty bad stories in the whole Bible. Uh, so we finished the book of Judges with what I think is one of the saddest, most horrible stories. And so from the moment I finished preaching that sermon, I almost wanted to say, let's have a second sermon last week. Let's start 1 Thessalonians then. Uh, but I thought you'd had enough by then. Uh, so I've been waiting all week to preach 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 because I think if last week is one of the most awful passages in the Bible, though I hope you found the message helpful, uh, this week is I think one of the most encouraging chapters in the whole Bible, one of the most uplifting. Uh, it's encouraging because it's about the impact of the gospel on people like you and me. Uh, it's about that incredible work of God that happens when the Holy Spirit takes the preached gospel, the preached Word of God, and brings it to bear on people's hearts and people's minds and changes them, like He has done for, I pray, you, and He has done for so many of us. Uh, and He convicts us in our heart and He makes us God's children. Uh, so I hope you find this passage as encouraging as I do. So let's go, uh, open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, like all of Paul's letters, it starts with a greeting, it says, Paul, Silvanus or Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So the Apostle Paul, with his co-workers, is writing to this church in a place called Thessalonica. You can still go there today, it's in the north of Greece, what was Macedonia then, but it's the north of Greece now. Uh, and this was a church that Paul had established. So not all of the letters in the New Testament were written to churches that Paul knew personally, this one he knew personally. You can uh, read about it in Acts 17, so maybe just make a note to read that in your Bible reading to get ahead on this term, uh, Acts chapter 17. And what happened was he went to this town, he started preaching to the Jews in the synagogue and several of them were converted. But then the gospel really took off amongst the Gentiles and lots of non-Jews, Gentiles were converted as well. But then the Jews who hadn't been converted, they got jealous because people were leaving the synagogue to follow the gospel, to follow the message of Jesus and so they raised up a mob and they basically tried to lynch Paul and his friends and to survive Paul effectively had to run out of town, he had to flee for his life and, and so it might be that he was in, when you sort of add it up in the book of Acts, you can't quite work it out but he could have been there as little as three weeks, if he was there much longer than that it certainly wasn't a lot longer, maybe a couple of months and so you can imagine his concern for this fledgling little church, can't you? So just, just imagine, you'd never heard the gospel before, 
someone comes and preaches it to you, they've only got two months with you at the most, three weeks possibly, and then they go. Imagine that, you remember how little you knew after you'd been a Christian for that length of time. Uh, and so for Paul, you can imagine his concern. He had founded this church, he cared about these people deeply, but he had to abandon it. Well, this is his letter back to them. And it's actually the earliest document we have in the New Testament. You know, that's the earliest part of the New Testament. Paul wrote this letter within 15 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's how early this was going on. So, from the opening greeting, it's encouraging. Look at it with me. Firstly, it's encouraging because he says, to the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's encouraging because there is a church there at all that is still trusting Jesus, despite all this persecution they are undergoing. They haven't been wiped out and they are still standing firm. It's really important that they are a church that is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's saying you're a real church. You, you know the real God and you're trusting the real Saviour. Then that wonderful greeting, which is at the front of all of Paul's letters, so we can skip over it often and, and forget about it, but it's so important. He says, grace to you. And grace is the most Christian word there is, isn't it? It's the word that captures the gospel. He is saying, God's unearned love to you. God's unearned favour to you. And then he says, and peace to you. So peace with God through Christ that comes only through the gospel and peace with one another. See, that is the greatest thing you can say to someone, grace and peace to you. How do you greet one another? G'day. Why don't you start saying, you know, first of all, why don't you call one another brother and sister and then why don't you say, I mean, other than just your brother and sister by blood, but why don't you say to one another, grace and peace to you. It's a great blessing. But now, what does Paul have to say to this little fledgling church that he had to leave so suddenly? Well, first thing he does is he thanks God for them. So look at verse 2. He says, we always thank God for all of you, remembering you constantly in our prayers. And I love the way the word sort of all comes up over and over again, or variations of it. So we're always thanking God for all of you, remembering you constantly or always in our prayers. And Paul is a model for us here. If we love one another, if we really think we are brothers and sisters in Christ, then we should be praying for one another. Constantly doesn't mean he did nothing else. You've just got to read the book of Acts to see how busy Paul was and he didn't spend the whole time praying. It means he kept praying for them. Just, it, they kept, he didn't sort of pray for them once and go, all right, I'm finished with the Thessalonians. He's like, no, 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 I'm going to keep praying for these people because if you are concerned for someone, that's what you do. I try to pray regularly for everyone at church. Uh, if you want to get prayed for, make sure your name is on the roll. But there are sometimes people who I'm really concerned for. There's sometimes people who I know they're going through hard times or they seem to be slipping away from Christian fellowship and I'm concerned for their salvation. For them, I pray constantly. It doesn't mean I'm praying for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It means I'm praying for you more than when your name comes up on my prayer list. I'm praying for you because whenever I worry about you, I pray for you. Well, that is like Paul here for these people. He's concerned. They're undergoing all sorts of trials, all sorts of suffering. He just wants them to stand firm for Jesus, so he prays constantly. And I hope you pray for one another. I hope you pray constantly for one another. But here, what's wonderful here is he is especially thanking God for them. And why? Well, look at verse 3. He says, We recall in the presence of God, our God and Father 
your work of faith, labour of love and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what's happened is in the short time he's with them, he saw it and now he hears about it and what he hears about is that the three key marks of being a Christian are in these people. What are the three key marks of being a Christian? Faith. They clearly trust in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Love, their faith shows itself in the way they treat one another, in their concern for one another, they're known by their love and then hope. They aren't living for this world. It's clear that they have something beyond this world that they're looking forward to and that means they can endure the suffering and the persecution with joy. You'd look at their lives and you would say, what do they live for? And you wouldn't say they live for their next holiday. You wouldn't say they live for their work. You wouldn't say they even live for their family. You would say they live for Jesus. It's just obvious when you look at them. And do you notice there, look at it closely, how it's work of faith, labour of love and endurance of hope. In other letters, false teachers were coming and were saying to certain churches, hey, you're not saved by faith. So Paul had to stress, you're saved by faith not by works, that wasn't a problem here. So here he can say, a real faith will show itself in works. He didn't have to worry about them getting confused. So it's like he's saying to them, you don't just talk about believing in Jesus at church. It just shows in your life. It translates into how you live. And you don't just talk about loving one another, you work hard at it, you labour at it. And you don't just discuss your hope in Jesus at Bible study on a Wednesday night. It impacts the way you live now. It means you persevere, it means you endure, even through suffering. So Paul doesn't just pray for them, he thanks God for the things that really matter, for their faith, for their love, for their hope. And that is what I thank God for, in all of you, and I pray that is what you thank God for and pray for in one another. And so I'm going to get us to do some application right now, uh, and I want you... So just if you've got a pen in your hand or some way of typing into your device or just use your head, I want you to just think of two or three people, look around but don't make it too obvious, three or two or three people who you can say, I have seen their work of faith, I am seeing their labour of love, I'm seeing their endurance of hope here in your church. Just think of two or three people you want to thank God for and then after I've given you a minute to think of who those people are, write them down, make a commitment to pray for them and thank God for them during the week, then I'm going to lead us in prayer right now and thank God for those people and you can just sort of insert their names as I pray, okay? So take a moment now, think about two or three people who you think, do you know what, I have seen their faith, I've seen their love, I've seen their hope and I want to thank God for them. They might be people who encourage you, they might be who you see from afar, but take the chance to think of who they are. I'm going to pray now and you can just insert their names as I pray, not out loud. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way we can look around at our brothers and sisters in Christ here and be so encouraged and see so much to thank you for. And we thank you in particular for those people we're all thinking of just now. And we thank you for the way their faith is just so obvious. We thank you for the way they so clearly love in the way they treat other people. And we thank you in particular for the way they so clearly have a hope in Christ that is beyond this world. And so we thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen.
Back to verse 4. See, because Paul sees faith, hope and love in them, because of that, he knows something wonderful about them. Look at verse 4. He says, knowing your election, brothers loved by God. See, because he's seen their faith, hope and love, he knows they are God's children. He is certain of it. He, he knows they are his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he knows God has chosen them. God has elected them before time began, not because they deserve it, but because God loves them. Don't ever get put off by the doctrine of election or predestination. And if people in your gospel team want to have big discussions about it that lead into people saying, oh, I don't know about that and all that sort of thing, just tell them to be quiet. You see, the fact that God chooses us to be His children, the New Testament says, is the most wonderful doctrine there is. It is meant to create joy and hope in you because it means no one can take your hope away from you because it's God who chooses you, not you who chooses God. So no one can take that away. Do you notice how Paul doesn't even bother explaining it here? He just says, how wonderful. I know that you are elect. I know that God has chosen you. Now, moving on. How does he know that they are God's elect? How does he know that they are God's children? Well, it's because, look at verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with much assurance. See, in one sense, the gospel is just words, isn't it? The news about Jesus is just words. It's information about a man who claimed to be the Son of God. It's information about a man who said, my death has paid the price for the sins of the world and now I'm raised from the dead. But they didn't receive it just as words. They didn't receive it as interesting information, just sort of to put in their brain alongside all the other stuff they've been learning. It came in power. It doesn't mean there were sort of bells and whistles and, and, and fires going off and fireworks. It means it gripped their hearts. It changed their minds. It convinced them that they were sinners and salvation can only be found through Jesus. But that powerful effect wasn't because Paul preached powerfully. That's very hard to say. It wasn't, for the, it wasn't because of Paul. Paul actually tells us elsewhere, I'm not a very good preacher. He, he says, I wasn't that impressive as a public speaker. No, the power was because the Holy Spirit was at work through the preached Word, gripping their hearts. And that meant that it gave them, look at verse 5, much assurance. And that is the key point. You see, that is what shows that the Spirit has worked in a person through the preaching of the Gospel. What is it that shows that someone really has trusted Christ? It's that we have assurance. We have the certain hope that God loves us, that we are forgiven, that we have a place in His kingdom. We have assurance because we know that it is certain, because it's not on the basis of what I do. It's not, have I been good enough for God? It's on the basis of what Christ has done for me, dying in my place. When we do Christianity Explained, we ask a key question to see at the end, to see if people have really grasped the gospel, if people really are saved, or whether we need to keep going back to the beginning and explaining it all again, and it's the old chestnut, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? If you died tonight, would you go to heaven? And then the key is, why? And if people say, in answer to that question, I don't know, then they haven't yet understood the gospel. Or if they say, I hope so, 
then they haven't got it yet. And if people say, yes, because I think I'm a good person, then they haven't got it yet. But if they say, yes, absolutely certainly, even though I don't deserve it, but Jesus died for me, then they've got it. That is the assurance that shows that the gospel has come to them, not just as word, but in power, by the Spirit. See, assurance isn't something that like full-on Christians have. If you know Jesus, you have the certainty of salvation, because He has done it for you. Now, what did this look like in the lives of these people? Well, that's what the last five verses are about, so come with me. And Paul draws out five things he saw in them that showed him that they were God's children, five things that showed him that they truly knew Jesus. And I've put the headings on your outline. The first is, they became imitators of Paul and of Jesus. Let's look at the end of verse 5 into verse 6. He says, you know what kind of men we were among you for your benefit, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. See, ultimately a Christian, a person who has come to know Jesus, wants to live like Jesus. That's fundamental to what it is to be a Christian. When, when you are saved, you go, well, now I want to be like my Lord. I want to follow my Lord Jesus. And, and we do that by reading the Scriptures and it convinces us of the things we want to put off and the godliness we want to put on and the selfishness we want to put on and the put off and the love we want to put on. But in addition to that, one of the ways we grow is we imitate other people who are trying to be like Christ. You see, sometimes Christians can think, oh, the minister or the youth leader, they're really godly, but that's because they're special or something like that. Hopefully we think they're godly, but anyway. Now, their godliness is meant to be something for us to imitate. And that's what happened here. They didn't just respect Paul and respect Silas and say, oh, look at how they lived. They're apostles. They're wonderful. They said, we want to be like Paul as he tries to be like Jesus. So when they saw Paul's sacrificial service, they didn't go, oh, isn't he great? They said, I want to serve like he serves. When they saw his love and concern for other people, they said, I want to have that love and concern for other people. When they saw him telling people about Jesus and making that the most important thing in their life, they said, I want to be like that. They didn't all become apostles. They didn't imitate Paul in the sense that I'm going to live an exactly parallel life to him. They didn't all become pastors, they didn't all become teachers, but they imitated his godliness and they imitated his priorities and so should we. But there's one thing in particular that Paul saw them imitating and that was his joy. So point two there, they were joyful despite persecution. Look at the rest of verse 6. It says, when in spite of severe persecution, you welcome the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. I said before, the three marks of a Christian are faith, love and, just testing you, hope. That wasn't loud enough. Anyway, well, the fourth mark is joy. And it's especially a joy that is not impacted by our circumstances. The Thessalonian Christians were not that happy, I don't think. They were copying it from all sides but they were still joyful because Christian joy is more than happiness. It is that deep-seated positivity that says, whatever happens, even awful stuff, I know that God loves me. 
So we can be having the worst time in the world and everything can be going wrong, but in the end, the Christian says, I know Jesus, and that's more important than this. It's like the great hymn uh, that we sing once in a while. Uh, it's by a guy called Horatio Spafford. We're going to put it up. It's a picture of Horatio up there. Uh, he lived in the 1870s in America, uh, and he wrote this song called It Is Well With My Soul. Who knows that hymn? There you go, we do sing it, I knew you knew it, there you go. I, I couldn't remember if we sing it here at 6.30 Church or not. And I've probably told you his story before, but he was a man who had everything in life, successful business, family, all of that, and then in 1870, his two-year-old son died. And then in 1871, there was a fire that went right through the city of Chicago, where he lived, and he lost all of his business. And so, to sort of create a new life for his wife and four daughters, he sent them to England, where life would be better for them, and their ship was lost at sea as they were going across to England. And he received a telegram from his wife that just said two words, saved alone. His four daughters had died. If ever there is a man who was sort of like Job in the Old Testament, it was this guy. He had every reason to throw it all away. But as he travelled across the Atlantic to be with his wife, and to mourn all of his children, he wrote this hymn. Have a look at the words that he wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way. So he's saying, in the good times, when things are peaceful, when things are good, but then when sorrows like sea billows roll, in the bad times, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How could he say that? do you reckon, given all that he'd lost? Well, it's because he knew Jesus. Later on, he says in the next verse, because Jesus has shed his own blood for my soul. That's how, and he knew his daughters knew that as well. See, as you look at that hymn, you would not call that a happy hymn, would you? It's not sung in a major key. This is what happy hymns are sung in, I'm told, <laughs> by the musician. You don't see that and you think that is a happy song, but it is dripping with joy. See, whatever happens, I know Jesus. Whatever happens, I know that He has shed His own blood for my soul. And so nothing can take that away. The great lie that too many modern Christians have bought into is that God offers us an easy life. The great lie that too many modern Christians believe is that God will give you everything you thought you dreamed of to make your life happy. It is a lie and it does not come from Scripture. God says to you, your life will be full of trials. You will face suffering in your life. You may even face persecution, but you know Jesus. And so the Christian says, despite all of that, I know Jesus, so I have joy. That's what Paul saw in these people, joy despite their suffering. And I pray that we might be marked by that unshakable joy in the gospel. Third thing he saw was that their faith was just obvious to everyone. It wasn't private. Just look from verse 7. He says, as a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. I just think this is wonderful. You see, this struggling, persecuted little church, 
Paul says, you are a model to all the Christians in your entire region. More than that, the Lord's message, the gospel, just rings out from you. You get the impression, despite all the persecution, they weren't hanging on for dear life, they were going, well, who's going as the next missionary? Who are we going to send out? Because we know Jesus and we have to share that with others. And so they were sending people out wherever they could to tell people about Him. Isn't that what you want our church to be known for, by the way? That's a, only one person answered yes out of a hundred <laughs> and something people. Isn't that what you want our church to be known for, by the way? I hope you do. We want to be a church that people look at and say, see their faith, see their love, see their hope. Those people have something I want. That's what we want our church to be, like the Thessalonian church was. And then we want to be a church that sends people out. Like this afternoon, we did the blouses. We commissioned them to send them back to Argentina. Like we have the Turners, like we have Howard and Michelle, like we have the McDowells and the Simons, and the list just goes on and on and on. Do you know, that, that is, do you know, this is fair income. That is the thing that St. George North is more famous for than anything else. Do you know that? It's not famous for me. It's not famous for you. It is famous for, people say, how is it that that church down there has just sent so many people out into ministry? Isn't that exciting? That's what we want. And if you feel like you want to go, come and talk to me. That's what we desire for our church. I pray that it is. Fourth thing, they turn from idols to God. Look at verse 9. It says, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And this is so important. Becoming a Christian involves a definite break with what we were before. You see, if you think you can become a Christian and just keep the same loves you had before you were a Christian, you haven't become a Christian. If you think you can become a Christian and keep the same attitudes you had before you became a Christian, you haven't become a Christian because becoming a Christian involves a decisive change where we turn away from what we used to worship, what we used to value, and we turn to the true and living God. And for them, that was really obvious because what did they used to worship? Idols made of stone and wood. And so it was obvious for us, it's far more subtle because our idols are money and worldly pleasure and really self-worship is what most of our religion was before we became Christians, where we just said, I'll be my God and I'll do whatever I choose. See, our, our idols are more subtle, but just as real. But when we become a Christian, we turn away from the old way of life. And we turn to, you see it there, to serve the living and true God. He chooses that phrase on purpose, living and true, because he's saying, unlike your idols, which are dead and false. You see, idols can't do anything for you, even the idols that we worship can't do anything for us. They promise a lot, but they just leave us empty and can never give us that joy and contentment that comes from knowing Jesus. But the point is, when we become a Christian, our whole focus of life changes. People should look at us and say, he's different to what he was like before. People should look at us and say, she's not on about it herself anymore. They should look at you and say, say, money isn't what drives him anymore. Career isn't what drives him anymore. He's different because now he serves the true and living God. Which brings to the final thing, and that is they lived waiting for Jesus. Just look from the start of verse 9 again. 
It says, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. A key part of living to serve the true and living God is understanding the time you are living in. This world will not go on forever. Jesus is coming back and he could come back tomorrow or it could be another thousand years, we don't know. And the scriptures tell us the only reason he hasn't returned is so that more people will hear the gospel and be saved. Because when Jesus comes back, it will be to judge the world. That is, the coming wrath. And the only way people will be saved is by trusting in Jesus. And for a Christian, that reality that the risen Jesus is coming back to judge the world, that reality that this world is not going on forever, that we look forward to the new creation, to the new heavens, to the new earth, that is the thing that should shape our lives more than anything else. We have to ask ourselves, does it shape our lives? Do we live as people who think this world does not matter as much as the next? Because that's how Christians live, we wait for Jesus. When people saw the Thessalonian Christians, they said, they are people who are waiting for Jesus. What do you think they saw in them? Or perhaps, what should it look like in us? Well, I think it would mean that people would see our urgency to tell other people about Jesus, don't you? Surely. Even if people don't like it and call us zealots, we tell them anyway. Because who cares what people think of us if Jesus is returning and everything hangs on people's response to Him? I think it means people would see that we hang much more loosely to our money and our possessions. See, we need a house and we need food to eat. We don't want to be a burden on others. But what good is more than one house if you are waiting for Jesus to return? What good is endless money in the bank if you are waiting for Jesus to return? Waiting for Jesus means we're much more concerned to store up treasures in heaven than on this earth. Isn't that right? And I think it means people would see that we use our time differently. Interestingly, they're the three areas, as I read through the New Testament this week, thinking, where does waiting for Jesus impact our life, according to the New Testament? It impacts on what you do with your tongue as you speak the the gospel. It impacts on what you do with your wealth, your money. Jesus made that very clear. But the other one is it impacts on your time. We're told in the book of Hebrews, it's because Jesus is returning that we prioritise encouraging one another with our time, because we want everyone else to be a part of the new creation with us. You see, yes, we're free to enjoy God's good creation with thanksgiving, but the person waiting for Jesus will not endlessly squander their time on themselves. That's what you do if this world is all there is. Instead, we'll want to use it to encourage and build others up in their faith. I could go on and on about all the ways it will impact, but the point is, if people look at us and say, they are no different. If we just look like everyone else, serving the idols of this world, living as if this world is all there is, how sad. My prayer for all of us, and what I see, I must say, in so many of us, is that like these Thessalonians, we will be so gripped by the gospel, so gripped by our love for Jesus, that people will look at our church and say, 
they have turned away from idols. They are serving the one true and living God. And they clearly do not live for this world anymore. They live as people waiting for Jesus to return. And I pray that people will look at every decision we make and that is what they will see. That is my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me and it's my prayer for our whole church. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the wonderful news of your gospel and we thank you for those who shared it with us. And we pray that people will look at us and they will see our faith and they will see our love and they will see our hope and they will see our joy often despite our circumstances. And we pray that they will see that we are different, that we have turned away from the idols that we used to worship. And in particular, we pray that people will look at us and say, they are living for heaven, not for this world. And Father, we ask that you'll be at work in each of us so that that might be true. But in particular, we pray that as people look at our church, that is what they will see. And Father, once again, we give you thanks for Jesus, but also for each and every brother and sister in Christ who is here with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.